Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Every one of us has an interesting and inspiring story to tell. Hello, I'm Marcy Brockman, author, artist, English teacher, and podcaster. My memoir, Permission to Land, Searching for Love, Home, and Belonging, is my story of surviving mental illness and addiction to learn to grant myself permission to grow, heal, and build a beautiful life for myself and my children. And check out the companion guided journal, Permission to Land, Personal Transformation Through Writing. Both are available wherever books are sold online, and signed copies are available at my website, marcybrockman.com. Taking My Mission of Healing Storytelling Worldwide is my hit podcast, Permission to Heal. Each episode provides inspiration, connections, and wholehearted vulnerability as we learn to give ourselves permission to heal. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Find Permission to Heal wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Find me, my books, and podcast, and so much more at marcybrockman.com. Yeah, there was a period of time where... I felt like I, like I wasn't going to stop crying. I felt like everything was triggering. I felt like safe places in my head didn't work. Um, I would go into my counselor's office every week and just cry in desperation. Like, oh, how, how do I carry this? How do I handle this? This, everything just hurt so much. Um, and, uh, that I, there, I don't think there was a specific moment when I realized that I had made it past that point. Um, I think, I think it just kind of slowly happened, but there was definitely like, that's why I say my first 18 months, probably maybe even two years were, were nothing but just trying to get my feet under me after being just knocked down by all of it. It knocked me over pretty good. Welcome to how my parents raised me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand What makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. 
what happened to them, how they got through, and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. I hope you're having a great week. I am chatting with Shannon this week and Shannon has an Instagram page called Surviving Childhood Trauma, where she's connecting with a huge audience of trauma survivors and offering them information, resources and community. And it's growing like wildfire because there's so many struggling with these issues and Shannon is doing amazing things with her platform. You know, I connect with many trauma survivors here on the podcast and via Instagram and every single story I hear is soul destroying. And then there's Shannon's story, which is one of the hardest to hear. When Shannon was born into the world, her mum was leaving it. She passed away in childbirth and Shannon was raised by her dad and his family where the trauma continued. Shannon's grandfather abused her from as far back as she can remember and the abuse was enabled by her father. And this is the part that enrages because at five years of age, Shannon began asking for help, questioning what was happening to her with various people, but nobody helped. Nobody listened, nobody stepped in, and nobody stopped the abuse. And the effects have been devastating. Shannon's story continued through her 20s and 30s and she talks about living three different lives, her trauma life, her dissociative life and now her healing life as she faces the trauma and makes the choice every day to heal. Nobody heard Shannon as a child. It is vital that we hear her now. Please join me in hearing Shannon's story. Shannon, I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. I found you via your Instagram account, Surviving Childhood Trauma, where you're sharing your own personal journey with complex PTSD in such honest and beautiful ways and creating an amazing community and safe space for survivors. It'd be good to just start out at the beginning. And can you tell us a little bit about your childhood story and what it was like growing up for you? Sure, I will do my best to surmise. So I, so I, when I was born, my mom died. Um, she went into a coma during childbirth and about and 18 days later, she passed away. So I was raised by my dad. <clears throat> um, I was born in California. So one area of the United States, when I was really small, my dad moved me from that area to Washington state, which is just couple thousand miles away. Um, and when he did that, he took me from my mom's side of the family. So I grew up um, in Washington state um, for most of my young childhood with my dad. Uh, and that's where the majority of all my childhood abuse took place. I don't know when the sexual abuse started that I don't remember. Um, but I have heard that the first time I spoke up was in kindergarten and my dad and my grandma were called to the school to assure them that I was just making up stories. So um, my, my abuser, my, my, the sec my sexual abuser was my grandfather, my dad's dad. My dad, on the other hand, while he didn't physically abuse me, was emotionally abusive, neglectful. Um, he both protected and I do believe enabled my grandfather to have access to me. And later in my story, um, he protected my grandfather during the trial. So my dad was very just, he was just, a, a, you know, he's just not a good dad. Um, so, so from as early as I can remember until age 12, my life was, you know, growing up with my dad, being abused by my grandfather. Um, I had my dad's sister, my aunt and her kids, my cousins that I, you know, spent time with. Um, I had another uncle 
that lived a few hours away with his family that I was not was never really that close with. I spoke up numerous times through school. Um, every time I spoke up, whether it was to my dad or, or, you know, in a school setting, nothing ever happened. My dad would either tell my grandfather that I was speaking, um, or I just nothing ever happened. You know, like I, I wish I could, yeah, offer you know a reason why, but nothing ever happened. When I was 12 years old, I asked someone at school if what my grandpa and I were doing was okay. And I don't remember if it was a teacher or if it was a teacher's aide, but they told me it wasn't. And I took that information and at 12, I, I remember I went to my grandpa and I, I told him that I had talked to someone at school that they told me what we were doing wasn't okay. And I, and I told him that I didn't want to do it anymore. <clears throat> and that was when that abuse stopped. Um, all during this time, my dad was very unstable. We lived in um, Section 8 housing, which is like government housing for poor people. Um, we lived off of, you know, government's programs for food uh, and income. My dad was in and out of relationships uh, a few different times and never held a job. Um, when I was in middle school, he, he's, he was on and off again with this one woman from, I don't know, I was probably maybe 10 or 11 until, until I left, uh, his, his left him at 14. So he's on and off with this woman right around age 12 or 13. I, I can't be certain. My memory is very vague when it comes to the, you know, like the timeline and how old I was when things were happening. Um, but we became, we, we were evicted. Um, my dad had had a job. He'd moved us into more expensive housing, lost his job, uh, and couldn't maintain the, you know, the bills for the apartment. So we moved in with her. Things became really unstable. They split up. We ended up living with my aunt, my dad's sister. I was, I think, 14 or just turned. And, you know, I'm, I'm sleeping on a mattress in the in the living room of my aunt's house, my dad's sleeping on the couch. Uh, and I decided that maybe I could go see my grandparents back in California. Um, now I, I used to visit them in the summers. Um, I, there was a few, a few times throughout the years where I would, you know, my dad would fly me down there for a few weeks. So I always kind of stayed in touch with those, with that side of my family. And my grandpa was like, that was my favorite grandpa, right? So. Um, so I called them and I asked if I could move in with them until my dad got on his feet again. And then I would go back to him. And they basically told me, if you come live with us, it's until you're 18, we're going to take guardianship. So at 14 years old, I told my dad that that's what I wanted. I told him that I wanted him to sign legal custody of me to my grandparents and I wanted to move away. Um, you know, and it was a really ugly conversation. He said a lot of really mean things and, um, you know, ultimately he allowed it all to happen. I, I don't know how long, but I ended up, you know, moving weeks or months later. Um, I moved in with my grandparents. They drove <clears throat> up to Washington and picked me up. So, so I'm, you know, I'm thousands of miles away now from my dad. Uh, my fallout with him was quick. And we became estranged um, within months of my leaving um, by his choice. He just stopped talking to me. Uh, and then, and then I just closed to my grandma, to my, you know, to, on the good side when I was down there. I don't, I don't know why I was a couple months, you know, or a couple years, I'm sorry, a couple of years away from the abuse. And I was thousands of miles moved. So there was really no reason I'd been silent all that time, but I disclosed and she was the first person that ever did anything. So um, she put me into counseling. The counselor was mandated to report. And I would say with, I mean, again, my memory of the timeline is really bad, but you know, with, within about a year's time, give or take a few months, the investigation happened. My grandfather was arrested. Uh, my aunt was found as a witness. She was also abused. So he was uh, abusive of his own daughter her whole life. Uh, and then once she grew up, he graduated to me. So we had a family pedophile. Um, so my aunt actually was a witness 
and I've come to realize the more survivors that I meet and the more stories that I hear, just how lucky I was that my aunt did speak up. Um, not lucky that she was obviously a victim. I would hope that didn't come out that way, but how lucky I was that there, there was that second victim that could speak up, that could give, you know, that sense of, of, um, behavioral pattern or who knows if my trial would have ever even gone to court, you know, would have even seen the inside of a courtroom. Um, but it did. So my grandfather was arrested. My aunt and I were both witnesses for the state. Um, my dad became a sworn witness for the defense to defend my grandfather. He was going to take the stand and testify against me. Uh, but it never got that far. My grandfather committed suicide the second day of the trial before my aunt or I even took the stand. So opening statements, beginning stuff, uh, and then he ended it all. So um, that all took place a week before my 16th birthday. I flew from California back to, or I'm sorry, from Washington back to California. Um, and that was it. Like that, it was, it. it was over. I celebrated my 16th birthday and it was, it was like nothing had ever, you know, nothing, you know, like this huge, um, trauma had not just happened. Um, it was about 10 weeks later, you know, my, my rebellion and my acting out and the way that I responded to everything was more than my grandparents could handle. So within 10 weeks, roughly, um, I moved again, another few thousand miles in a different direction in the United States to stay with my half sister and her mom. Um, my dad had had gotten remarried after my mom they had a child and then split so I actually grew up always believing I was an only child but I do have a half sister and she and I are actually very close now we don't live very far from each other and we're very close but um, I was 16 when we really truly her and I met and it was when I moved in with her her mom has her own story <laughs> and so it was a very tough 18 months for me when I moved in there her mom kind of continued to reaffirmed for me that I was a bad kid and I wasn't easy to love and I was too much you know she did a bit I I always try to be respectful of my sister's mom but my sister's mom's got a very narcissistic personality she's very emotionally abusive very verbally abusive you know so it was really tough she kicked me out by the time I was like 17 and a half um I met my husband, my, my first husband, uh, right around that same time. I had my first child right before I was 19. My young marriage fell apart really quick. Um, and once that kind of dissolved, I shut this door on that, like first part of my life that, you know, childhood through teenage years. Um, and I started at like a second life. I always say I lived three lives. So that was like the trauma life. After my, my first marriage ended, I just like shut a door. Um, and then I pretty much dissociated and went right into survival mode. Um, and I stayed in survival mode until about four years ago. Um, I raised my first child through that survival mode. I was in a long-term relationship that was very actually abusive. The more I kind of look back and reconnect and, and reflect on, you know, my twenties and, and the way that I was and the, the things that I've done and how, how, you know, knowing now how my trauma has affected all of the relationships and the way that I've responded to people and how I've interpreted things and perceived things. Um, the more I, you know, I learn that now as I reflect back. Um, so I have, you know, I have, you know, 15 years, give or take of this dissociative survival mode life with like all these kind of secondary traumas that I went through because my own child, my oldest is struggling with things due to how I raised them, you know, and, and just because I didn't know what I didn't know, even though I thought I was doing everything different. Um, so I did that for, you know, however long when I was, when I was 29, I was still in, in like survival mode, I actually met my husband now. Um, and, you know, we've been together just over 12 years, I started healing, like everything really came to the forefront. And um, suddenly my, my childhood was just like there and couldn't be ignored um, about four and a half years ago. And that's when I realized that I'm now living the third life in my lifetime. So I had that 
that first life of all that trauma and grief and loss and betrayal. And then I had that second life of dissociation and survival and, you know, secondary trauma is just kind of piling up. And now I'm in this third life where I'm reconciling all of that and finding the continuity in my life and reconnecting to all of those parts so that I can move forward and heal it. So that's pretty much my story in a nutshell. <laughs> um, wow. Any details you want though, just, just ask. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a really like brushed over 101 survey. Um, there's a lot of detail in there that I kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wow. And just going back to the very beginning of that, the fact that you at five put your hand up and said, help. Yeah. I tried to speak to somebody about it and then repeatedly tried to speak to people about what was happening. And nobody did anything I mean that in itself is just something that changes the way your brain works doesn't it because you right. have nobody to nobody's believing you and you must I mean even at five I feel like we would know inside that this isn't right but we have to override that and and people are telling us, oh, that's fine. You're okay. There's nothing wrong. And so, yeah. You grow up not, you grow up not trusting yeah, anybody, um, including yourself, but not even maybe realizing that you don't trust people or yourself. Because I was really good at telling myself that I trusted people unless they gave me a reason to. But I know now as I look back that I was always waiting for someone to betray me you know always I was always waiting for that other shoe to drop always expecting it so yeah absolutely and you then went to live with your grandmother and grandfather and you seem to find this safe space mm. and yet they were not able to deal with everything that happened around that time and that's just so sad, isn't it? That they were not able to yeah. somehow manage to figure something out for you there because you'd finally found somebody that believed you and all of that that happened at that point, that just not having somebody. I guess everybody has their own stuff and they just obviously couldn't deal with that at that moment. I definitely reconcile a lot of that because I, I'm, I am angry at my grandparents. But I also realized, especially now, um, the more I, I, again, the more I get, you know, enmeshed in this circuit of, of survivor community and really learn. And um, I mean, it's amazing. I don't, even four years ago, this like, how do I, what was the word I'm looking for? Just the, how the circuit online, you know, online on Instagram, all the survivor community, all the pages, all the the therapists that talk about trauma, all the trauma survivors talking about trauma. Even four years ago, when I first started counseling, this type of connection and resource wasn't available. Like it, it just wasn't there. So when I think back to like nine, cause this all happened in the early nineties. Um, my trial was in 1995. So I started talking, like I disclosed to my, my good grandparents in 90, in 1994 there was no trauma-informed care. Like there was no trauma-informed resources for my grandparents. I don't, um, I mean, I don't know what I was diagnosed with or being treated for. I, I don't know that those records even still exist at that counseling office, but I highly doubt, like I would bet money <laughs> that I was not being treated for PTSD. I was, you know, maybe being treated for some sort of oppositional defiance disorder, personality disorder, maybe depression or anxiety, which even then I didn't like, I was 37 years old before I learned what like put the word anxiety to the feeling in my body. I've had that acidy, bubbly, scared, pensive, ready to run feeling so many times in my life. And I was in my late thirties before I realized and made that connection that, oh, that's anxiety, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I have a lot of that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I do, I get mad, um, sometimes cause that was probably the safest I felt as a child in those was those couple of years there, but between generational 
differences, you know, my grandparents in their sixties and <laughs> me being a you know, 14 year old, 15 year old. Um, yeah. And then lack of resource or support for them even. Yeah. Um, none of us stood a chance. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting you say that even four years ago, there wasn't very much information around this. I mean, even for myself in my own journey, I feel like I just stumbled across all these things at some point and it wasn't that long ago. And I just assumed I'd missed, <laughs> I'd kind of missed it, but I feel like these things are only really just very recently coming out. And so in past times, people were really stumbling around in the dark and having no idea really what was going on. And in those years when you were in your first marriage and then you were a single mom, what's it like living in that dissociative state? I mean, is it like you just don't understand that what's happened to you is affecting you in any way? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, I lived that whole time never forgetting, but never remembering, having no visceral connection, emotional connection, no connection at all, psychological connection. It was so compartmentalized for me that it was a different person. Like I told that, even though I told the story about myself, it was, it was still somebody else that wasn't, that wasn't me. That was probably the hardest part of those early days of healing for me was, was truly reconciling that connection that this story that I'm telling, oh, I'm choke up, was me as a child. Um, so, so yeah, it was, you know, emotions were there. Like, I don't want to say that I wasn't like emotionally there, but they were super shallow, super, super very superficial and, and, and not understood, you know, like I had happiness, I had anger, I had sadness, um, I had fear, but I didn't understand nuance. It was either I'm angry or I'm not, you know, there's no frustration, annoyance, um, you know, disappointment. There's, there was no, there was no distinction between like grief and loss versus someone hurt my feelings and betrayal and, or fear or anxiety, you know, like, so for me, I just, I just lived my life. I was a big people pleaser. I worked my butt off, super workaholic, like queen of workaholic. Um, I get, had my kid and everything that I thought they were supposed to be in, you know, soccer, swimming, we tried karate, but it really didn't work. You know, I, I did the things that I thought I was supposed to do as an adult. We, you know, went to concerts. We did you know, just like, yeah, I just did everything I thought I was supposed to. I stayed inside the lines of, of what I thought of, of everything that I didn't have. Right. I, I really tried to give my kids stability. We didn't move a lot. Um, I worked really hard to not have to need government programs because I just, I wanted so bad to just give the exact opposite. But what ended up happening was while I'm going through all the motions of, of a functioning life, you know, that looks good to everybody else and successful to everybody else, I was not connected to myself. I was not, I didn't know what my hobbies were. I didn't know what I really was passionate about or what I did and didn't like, you know, I, I didn't have an emotional connection with my oldest, um, the juxtaposition between my, my oldest child and my youngest, I have a six-year-old and a 22 year old and the way that they're being raised and the way that they identify emotions with my six-year-old now versus my oldest when they were six. Um, you know, I just wasn't, I didn't have the emotional availability, the emotional capacity codependency was huge. I, you know, didn't know where I began and my child uh, or where I ended and my child began because as a single mom, my child was like the one person that could love me unconditionally. Um, and I lacked boundaries because I didn't know how to set them. So, um, you know, that, that was how I lived my life was just this kind of plow ahead, blinders on, do everything I think I'm supposed to do. Um, you know, and I don't want to say that I wasn't there for the experiences because I do have memories, you know, and I did wonderful things with my oldest when they were young. And, we, you know, we did do good things. It wasn't a horrible childhood for my oldest, but I definitely know that I was just, you know, I was just going through emotions. Um, and that's what that dissociative state was like. It, 
like it the matrix movie is like literally the best explanation it really is it was so visceral to wake up when i started healing and to look back and 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 to realize like yeah just how kind of shallow and and superficial and just like survival mode those years were it's there's a lot of grief in there you know actually it's not just my kid i i you know my sister we're close now but we weren't so for almost 20 years you know i saw her at holidays and stuff when I should have been seeing her a lot more. It's not like she lives very far. You know, I have two nieces who are 17 and 15 now that I've only in the last four and a half years really truly been a constant and consistent part of their lives. You know, thankfully my, I, this all started right as my nephew was born, my nephew's four. So he's always gonna grow up with Aunt Shannon. But um, even that, you know, I can't go back and I can't get that time back where my sister struggled with her own kids and through life. and. I was struggling and, and I lost, you know, moments that I could have had like an awesome bond with my sister in those years. But for me, family was bad. You know, family was not something I had. Um, and I had really created a bubble around myself um, in those years and just pushed everybody away except for the people that I chose to be in that bubble. And I didn't choose family. And that included my mom's side of the family who, uh, since I began healing, I've reconnected with that's my aunts, aunts and uncles on that side and my cousins distance and years, you know, just kind of caused and not an estrangement because we've always kind of popped in and in and out on each other, but really connected us. My healing has really connect reconnected me with my family. Um, but I lost a lot of that too. In those years of dissociation is like memories and experiences with family because I just I, I was isolated myself so tightly to protect myself without even realizing. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? You, you don't really even realize what you're doing. I think in that, that situation is putting yourself in that bubble. Is that really just a way of giving you safety in your life? Yeah. I think that for me, family was a bad thing you know, family continually let me down. My dad let me down. My grandparents let me down. My aunts and uncles let me down. So my, you know, my sister's mom had let me down. Everybody had let me down. So I just, family was not a thing for me. I created my own family, you know, with my child, with partners, with friends. So yeah, isolation was absolutely a protector. Yeah. And so you go through this period of dissociation and you're bringing up your son and then when do you get this diagnosis of PTSD? So I was, so I met my husband 12 years ago. My oldest was 10. In the, in the early years, we did a lot of, um, I went through a lot of, my oldest wanted to go live with his dad for a while uh, when he was younger. And so there was some back and forth custody there. When I really look back, I can see how that must have been very triggering for me, but you know, I'm not aware of this stuff. So, so I went through some of that. Um, a lot of, it was very hard to co-parent, to co-parent. My husband and I got really involved in community work and politics, maybe 10 years ago. It was pretty early on in our relationship. And it was probably the most passionate and focused and like part of something bigger I'd ever felt in my entire life. Right. I was like, the work I was doing, the people I was meeting, it was just so, it was probably the, yeah, it was the most probably vulnerable and authentic I'd ever been. And this is all again, pre-healing. Um, so I think I'm, and I'm what I'm setting the stage for is how over like the last five, my, my relationship with my husband has really, uh, it really started to um, ripple the water because my husband is the safest person that I've ever been in a relationship with. He's always been my biggest cheerleader. He's always given me the space to just be myself. We went through the politics. I, I started learning what it was to embrace who I was. Then we you know, got married. We had our daughter. Um, all these big things are happening. I have all this space to be me. I'm safe. Things are calming down. Things are stable. And I'm on a subconscious level. Everything inside me went haywire. <laughs> like I... Um, suddenly, you know, my marriage was suffering. Things were starting to manifest in my behavior, in my connection with my husband, in just how I responded to the, to the world. 
Um, we were starting to fight, which never happens. Like he and I don't fight. Um, we ended up having this really big, it was the catalyst. It was this really big fight. I, I really thought that our marriage wasn't going to make it through this weekend. And it turned out to be a, a, just this few days of silent treatment and withdrawal. Um, it was probably the most intense trigger, a physical trigger that I have, have had gone through pretty much at that point in my life. And I was sitting at work a couple days later and it just like, all of a sudden in my head, I'm just like, there's, is, there's no way that it could be that. I can't believe that it could be that. Is it really that? And I, I started Googling the symptoms of childhood sexual abuse and adulthood and, you know, kind of reading into some of that stuff. And it was just like this, it was just this really, you know, pivotal day, pivotal moment, um, reading all this stuff that was like reading basically my life story to that point. I was 37 when this all happened. Um, I had gone to school for social work, so I knew the agencies in my city. So I called an agency that works specifically with domestic violence and sexual abuse victims. Um, I started seeing a counselor there uh, within a few weeks. I, I started seeing her and that was just, that was just really where it started. It was like, all of a sudden, I just, you know, people normally go to counseling, right? Because they're noticing behavioral patterns or just something, you know, we don't always know exactly what we're going for. We just know there's something we want to work on. Um, I went into counseling, I like, I, I went into counseling knowing full well, oh my gosh, I have this childhood. Um, I just remembered, I just realized, what do I do with it? Yeah, and that was it. I spent the next probably 18 months just on my knees, pretty much trying to just kind of reconcile as realization and everything. I mean, it took that long just to kind of get my feet under me once it, once it really hit. I, I think it's age, right? It's age and perspective and experience. I don't think because of the environment that I grew up in and the family that I, you know, like the family that I don't have, um, I don't think I had the, the space or capacity to start my healing any sooner unfortunately for me. I mean, obviously I wish I could have gotten an extra 10 years in there or something, but, but yeah, that, that was how it happened. And it was swift when it happened. You know, I went from, yeah, not thinking, you know, yeah, my childhood was bad, but you know, whatever to, you know, oh my God, the magnitude of this, what, what did I go through? Um, yeah, it was really rough, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but that's how it happened. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think most people are, are similar and can have a horrific childhood and then your 20s and 30s, you're just kind of forgetting it and just focusing on other things, but it, it just seems to come back and hit you. Mm-hmm at that point at some point I don't know that many people deal with it early enough what was the hardest point in that journey did you feel like you weren't ever going to get through it there was a lot of hard parts I don't know if there was a hardest part I think all the parts feel the hardest as I go through them if I'm honest I definitely went through a period where um so so the adage, you know, you, it gets worse before it gets better. That is so true. There's like no way to sugarcoat that because in order to get better, we have, we have to, I had to 
like not just shoulder up with and, and recognize, right? It's not just about saying, okay, this is what I went through, you know, um, but it's accepting that what I went through like affects me like in ways that I never wanted to admit. So um, yeah, there was a period of time where um, I felt like I, like I wasn't gonna stop crying. I felt like everything was triggering I felt like safe places in my head didn't work. Um, I would go into my counselor's office every week. I, for the first 18 months, I saw a counselor, tw two different counselors once a week each. And I would go into both of their offices, you know, at my respective sessions with each of them and just cry in desperation. Like, you know, how, how do I carry this? How do I handle this? this everything just hurt so much. Um, and uh, that I there I don't think there was a specific moment when I realized that I had made it past that point. Um, I think I think it just kind of slowly happened. Um, <clears throat> but there was definitely like that's why I say my first eighteen months, probably maybe even two years, were were nothing but just trying to get my feet under me after being just knocked down by all of it. You know, some people, I don't know, some people might handle, may handle it a little bit better. Some people not as great. I, you know, I, 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 it knocked me over pretty good. Another really hard part for me was how it affected my marriage. That was, that was probably one of the toughest parts was trying to navigate the changes in my marriage as I feel while also trying to navigate my healing. Yeah, that was really hard too. Yeah, we we certainly need very understanding partners in order to make it through yeah. with what's going on and yeah yeah we, we have to feel grateful for that and was part of your therapy emdr yes so yeah that was the i started with the counselor at the agency and she recommended me into emdr and that's how i found my counselor that i see now yeah yeah i did and, that in the early days and how did you learn, so the, the triggers, how did you learn, what were the things that were really good for you in order to sort of recognize and, and calm triggers? So that's a good question. Cause I don't not, I still don't know all my triggers. I still don't catch all my triggers. Um, I think what it is, is I have grown, I have, I have learned patience and understanding of my triggers, not necessarily how to stop them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I've, I've learned through, I've learned through my experiences, through my conversations with my counselor, through, through trauma responses and, and, you know, um, triggering moments. I've learned that my, my biggest trigger responses come from feeling powerless feeling like I have to defend myself, feeling like I'm not being heard or feeling like I'm, you know, being kind of dismissed. Like those are, and, and I'll be honest, powerlessness and like not being good enough or, or, you know, being too much. Those are probably my biggest ones. So the first part was kind of learning what my emotional triggers were. And, and when you, and, and in order to learn those, you really have to kind of face off with where they come from. Right. And finding out, you know, like, reconciling that those came from the fact that I wasn't believed and I was gaslit by my family and my dad did you know testify against me like there are reasons that I feel this way and and it took me a long time to find compassion for myself because I really want to intellectualize it and scold myself and be like hey okay you know that this is why you feel this way so stop there's no reason to feel this way you know your dad was a jerk um, but it doesn't work that way. So I've, I've learned to be understanding of my triggers. Um, another thing that's helped me with my triggers is recognizing my body's response. Um, I spent a long time, like the majority of my life disconnected from my body. Um, for the first few years of counseling, Anytime I talked about emotions or feelings or anything at all, my counselor always asked me where I felt it in my body. And she was forcing me to take inventory of myself long before I even fully had the capacity to connect and, and really truly take inventory of myself. 
but learning that learning learning the neuroscience behind behind trauma learning that what i went through at such a young age affected my nervous system and the way that my brain developed in the way that it responds the way that it filters things and and perceives threats that helped me understand and learn that when i'm triggered my body tends to respond before my brain so i've learned um so it's kind of a multifaceted thing i've learned that my my triggers are i'm powerless i feel powerless you know etc i've also learned that my body responds and i've learned how my body responds and that's taken time um, so when my body starts to respond in a certain way, there have been times where I'm in the middle of a conversation and all of a sudden I realize, wow, I'm tense and shaking. That's one of my physical response, trigger responses. And, and it hasn't even intellectually caught up yet, right? I'm not even responding verbally or emotionally in a trauma or trigger. It's just a physical thing. I don't know that I used to catch those, right? So it was like the body would respond immediately. The emotions respond over time, learning how to name my triggers, learning how my body responds, I've been able to use that together to really just recognize when a trigger is happening. Because another thing I've learned is that we don't, just because we know our triggers and we recognize that they're coming doesn't mean we're, we're gonna stop them. We maybe just have to navigate them. Um, I just recently went through something with my father-in-law where he triggered me um, emotionally in a very intense way. and. You know, there was no getting around the emotions. I had to have them. So I had to go find a safe space to have them where I wasn't going to make a scene so that I could then come back into a situation with a more logical head. But that doesn't stop the, the physical. I mean, the trigger response and the, and the residual effects of, of a trigger in the body can sometimes last for days, even when our logical mind is, you know, navigating it or managing it properly. So that was a really long answer, but that's how I manage and handle triggers. That's how I've learned how to handle them. So it's a great answer. And it is knowing all of that science and all, you know, we can say, oh, well, it's just this, this, and this, but, but it, if you actually have all of that real information behind and you know, well, mm -hmm. this is just how my brain is working now, you know, and I have to work around it. I think it's really important for people to understand that the more information that we can find out and sometimes you come across something it's like oh my gosh that's something I never knew and it just yeah. adds a little piece to the puzzle doesn't it of of all the things that we've been able to bring in and learn about just how our own brain and our own body works and how are you now with your feelings you were talking about when you were younger and you you just had a, a small range of feelings has that opened up a lot for you? Tremendously, um, tremendously. I have a much more uh, in-depth emotional vocabulary, uh, not just verb, like not just word vocabulary, but I actually can feel a whole, uh, you know, I, I can recognize and identify the nuance of emotion. Um, and that's another thing that does help me recognize when I am in a trigger response or if I am triggered and responding, because as I learn the nuance of emotion and I learn my own responses, I learn, I'm learning when I maybe over respond. So yeah, I actually joke a lot though, because my youngest obviously is getting the same, you know, lesson in emotions that I'm taking in for myself now. Um, and she has a much better vocabulary, emotional vocabulary at six than I did when I first started healing at 37. So wow. um, yeah. But I mean, I have an emotions wheel. Like I do use tools. Like I don't just know emotions off the top of my head. Sometimes I'm feeling a lot and I have to pull out my emotions wheel and I have to start in the center with the most basic, I'm angry and then move out or I'm scared and then move out so that I can figure out where I'm at. So emotions are still something that I'm learning. Okay. I hadn't heard of using an emotion wheel. That sounds like a really good concept for people that are struggling with figuring out their emotions. So it's good that you mentioned that. And how has this journey now affected your relationship with your older child, your 22 year old? So it's still in the process of affecting that. I'm not really sure what the full outcome is going to be. I mean, granted there, the outcome will always be fluid and ever flowing, but you know, I started this healing journey for myself when my oldest was 18 and I'll be honest. I don't believe my oldest knew what, what I had been through. My, my husband did but I don't think that my oldest knew until I went into therapy. 
you know, and at the time, my oldest hadn't hadn't reached a point where they felt like they were having any type of, of serious mental health issues. I mean, there was de- depression and anxiety and stuff in the house, you know, and, but um, when I started healing and I started to change, my oldest was going through their own stuff. There's so much to this. It's not just like I started healing and then how did it affect our relationship? My oldest was going through their own stuff as well, um, figuring out who they are, dealing with their relationship with their father and and what that brought into it, going through their own experiences, making some bad decisions, dealing with the consequences of those, um, all the while, while I'm trying to become this new person, figure out my emotions. But again, it, it gets worse before it gets better. I was a mess. Like, I'm not trying to scare survivors away. Like I, if, if anything, listen to me now and use it as like push through it. Right. Because I got through it. But in that first year, 18 months, I was like, I was a mess. I was all over the place. I did not have control of anything. It was, it was really, really hard to keep myself, you know, functioning. And, you know, like I, I really only had enough energy to like go to work and, and, and that was it. Um, so my relationship with my oldest has been tough over the last few years. They're also on their own healing journey, dealing with their own issues, you know, and their own challenges, their own struggles. We're in a good spot now. My oldest and I are close. We've never not been close, but we are trying to figure out a new way of having a relationship because I didn't do very good with boundaries because I was really bad with codependency. Um, and we are both very aware of that. And so we're, we're trying to figure out who we are now and who we want to be and how we want to have a great relationship together. Um, so it's been difficult, but also it's been nice because I know that I know that my child is watching me do the work. Um, and I'm also there to help them if they ask as they do the work. So, you know, it, it has affected us, but I'm hopeful that it'll be good in the long run. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's the best you can do, isn't it? It's working through and just because it it is just a work in progress. All relationships are a work in progress, whether they're good or bad. Right. So what have you had to learn about boundaries? Because this is something that I, in only recent times have, have learned more about what have you learned about boundaries? Oh my goodness. <laughs> what haven't I learned about boundaries? So boundaries are, they're emotional, they're relational, they're physical. I learned that I didn't know the first thing about boundaries. <laughs> I learned that, or I have learned that they're hard, that as much as I want people to just accept my boundaries, that people will challenge them, <laughs> that that makes me angry. That makes me feel triggered. I learned that other people's boundaries with me can be triggering. And these are all just the overviews, but on a, on a personal level, what have I learned through boundaries? I have learned how to really listen to myself and what I need. I mean, I've struggled with boundaries in all realms of my life, but you know, I've really struggled with personal boundaries. I work too much. I burn myself out. I give everything I've got and, and then some rarely asking for much in return. I mean, I've always been if I'm going to use the technical terms, kind of the fawn people pleaser, I want to avoid conflict. I want to make sure that everybody's taken care of at my own expense. So learning to have boundaries for myself, Hey, I'm not, I'm taking the day off. I'm not going to be able to do that for you or, you know, whatever those boundaries are where I need to take it for myself. I've had to work through feeling mean, feeling selfish, feeling like I'm letting people down um, feeling like I'm not meeting my, you know, obligation or being productive enough. Like those were those I had to learn within myself. And I still work on that emotionally. I've had to learn how to allow other people to have their emotions and to not internalize them or, or see them as a reflection of myself that, you know, something as simple as my child is mad at me and, you know, letting my child be mad at me and still holding a boundary without maybe getting angry back or thinking that my child hates me and that I'm a terrible mom. Same with my husband, those types of of emotional boundaries. But then boundaries of my healing, being able to say to my husband, I need space, you know, whenever, whatever it might be, there was a 
period of time through my healing when our intimacy was just like, it was not a thing. My healing was so connected to my body and my body was not having any of it. Um, and I needed that space. And that was really scary because my husband's, his love language is physical affection. And I was like, don't even think about touching me. And, you know, that was a struggle. And it was very scary to say, hey, I need this space. I need you to back off because I was afraid you would leave me and abandon me, you know, reject me. Same with friendships, with especially with the pandemic and the way that my healing has taken off um, and who I'm becoming and who I'm like realizing that I am. I am, I'm finding that some friendships that I was in pre-pandemic, maybe I don't want to continue post as we kind of come out of back into, into the world, um, you know, finding those relationships and, and work relationships. That was hard learning how to say no to my work and delegate work versus take, cause I was a boss before the pandemic. So it was really easy for me to take on everybody's responsibility instead of holding my staff accountable. Cause if my staff wasn't doing it, then clearly everybody would think that I was just a bad boss not look at, you know, staff and their own individuals. So yeah, boundaries across the board, emotional, relational, physical, they were hard. Um, and I still struggle with them sometimes. That was the whole part of the trigger with my father-in-law that I just mentioned a little bit ago that I went through. It was a boundary that he wasn't respecting and the way that he disrespected it just sent me down a rabbit hole because <laughs> I yeah. felt like he wasn't listening, you know, and, um, yeah. So boundaries, they have been so empowering and so pivotal in my healing in as far as embracing myself and, you know, being authentic, um, but really scary and really just really uncomfortable sometimes for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I love that they're empowering. It is. It's so important, isn't it? The realization that you can actually have these things called boundaries. <laughs> Yeah. It's like that's the starting point and then you take it from there. I saw that you say that healing is a daily choice and I love that because it means I guess that some days we can give it our best and it might not actually be a great day but we can get up the next day and it's a daily choice. How important has that been in your healing? Well, it's been really important, Mo more so for me because of the, the long-term effects of complex PTSD on the brain and body. You know, yes, we can rewire our brains. Yes, our brains are neuroplastic. They can, you know, regenerate and stuff. But I don't know at this point, because they haven't gone away yet, I don't know that triggers ever fully go away. You know, I don't know that the grief and the pain, you know, and the loss that I feel is ever going to go away because my childhood is never going to go away. Like every day I wake up, my childhood will be there. My dad's betrayals will be there. The way that my family abused me, it will all be there. All those hurts and those. So for me, knowing that every day I get up and I choose to heal, I choose to set boundaries to take care of myself, to surround myself with safe people, to share my story, to feel my hurt, feel my loss, but not let it consume me. I make the choice to manage and cope with triggers. I make the choice to sit in my stressful emotions and move through them. I make the choice to embrace amazing, happy days. And I make the choice to be understanding, compassionate when I decide I need to just sit on the couch all day and binge on Netflix, right? The hardest part for me has been accepting that my childhood will affect me my whole life. I think that the reason I, I know that the reason I dissociated and maybe other survivors survivors will relate to this is because when I was dissociated, what they did to me wasn't affecting me. I got to say that I survived it and it, and it wasn't affecting me. And what healing is, is recognizing that it does affect us but not allowing that to define us. And that's been the hardest thing for me is accepting that long-term that, you know, damn it, it really did. It really did affect me. It really did hurt me. They really did do that. And, you know, it makes me angry and it's hard to accept sometimes. And so for me, healing is a daily choice, healing as a daily choice. It's just, it's the hope that I hold on to every day that 
that I'm going to live a better life than what they tried to set me up for, that they don't, they're not going to, you know, they always say like, um, we didn't get to start our stories, but we get to finish them. And I'm just like, no, like, I didn't even want to be a part of that story that got started. I'm starting today. I'm healing myself today. I'm starting my own story (laughs) from beginning to end. And that's my daily choice to heal. Oh, I love that. That's, that's so good. What brings you joy now? (laughs) Oh my goodness. So many different things. Um, I, I mean, the obvious stuff, right. I find joy in my family, but that's like the cop-out answer. Um, but no, truly like even little things, like I watched my, my youngest, I watched her eyelashes grow when she was a baby that brought me joy. And that was before I even started my active healing, but that brought me like, that brought me joy, you know, connecting with survivors brings me joy. I ha- I love to do solo crafting projects. Those bring me joy. Um, I have three cats. They bring me joy. We have a beautiful front yard, a bunch of bird feeders out. And we're, my husband and I are like self-proclaimed bird watchers. Like that brings me joy. There's so much in my life now that does, that brings me joy. And, and it brings me joy because I'm so mindful and I'm so intentional with it. I've learned that I have to embrace my happiness the same way that I embrace the sad parts of my journey because I'm not used to being happy. I didn't live a, you know, as a child, I was taught to embrace happiness and have good days and, you know, be joyful. So I practice every day to be mindful of my happiness. So all kinds of stuff bring me joy. I could, I could list off a million things. My, my survivor friends bring me joy. It's so good that you've got so many things, especially like you say, having come from a place where there wasn't very much joy and just feeling joy and making it an active choice, I think is so important, isn't it? Like you say, because we can just say, oh, I don't know what that is. And and you have to kind of almost cultivate it every day and make it happen. So Shannon, your Instagram account is surviving childhood trauma and you have many offerings there. Can you tell us what you're doing with that platform and your website that might resonate with people or where they can connect with you best? So I'm most active on Instagram. I have my Survivor Speak Live series. So survivors that are looking for a platform and a safe space to share their story, they can go to the link in my bio if they'd like. I do that show on Mondays and it's just a space where I meet with survivors and we just talk, they share their story. I listen, we talk about healing, you know, plenty of, plenty of shows on my channel for survivors to look at and watch to see what it's about. I have trauma talk uncensored twice a month with Tanner, but right now she's on sabbatical. So I'm doing it with a guest co-host, but that's just a Saturday morning coffee and uncensored trauma talk. Like it's what you see is what you get. I also offer peer support groups. They're donation-based there. I have a morning group and an evening group. I try to accommodate the world clock as best I can. Right now, I think my July groups are, are full, but I'm seriously considering adding some more groups because it's such an, a needed thing. They're virtual groups. I facilitate them on Zoom. I'm not a professional counselor. I'm just an expert at my own story and my own trauma healing. Um, but it's been a great space, you know, small group of survivors. We get together. I keep them topic focused to help us, but ultimately it's just a space where survivors connect and kind of hold each other up as we deal with week to week stuff. I do do journaling workshops for survivors that are trying to learn how to journal or trying to use journaling as a tool for self-care. Journaling is one of my favorite things, uh, self-care tools. I love writing. That's what you get. Surviving childhood trauma is literally my public journal. That's what you guys get. Most mornings you get thoughts over coffee and that's like my daily journal entry, you know, and then all the other shows and stuff are just kind of, kind of extra. Um, but that's, that's pretty much it right now. It's the, the workshops, the peer support group. My website is kind of just a, it, it's not much more than I have merchandise on my website, but a lot of the content from Instagram is also on my website. So the website's really just kind of where you can get in touch and sign up for stuff. So 
that's about it right now. <laughs> Sounds amazing. I mean, all these things where trauma survivors can connect, it's so important to be a part mm -hmm. of a community. Shannon, your story is a difficult one to hear because I guess nobody wants to really believe that these things happen to tiny and beautiful souls in this way. But the way you're using your pain to inform, educate other survivors and bring them along into a community and show them all the ways to heal is truly amazing. Everything you're doing is so important. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for being the amazing light that you are. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. It's my honor to be a part of this community too. So it's just as healing and helpful for me as it is for them. Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.